Hello, and welcome back to the seventh episode of Gavel Talk, a Model UN podcast. I'm Devanch Pandey, your host, and today I am joined with not one, but two guest speakers. Um, and let's start by introductions. So, Vincenzo, go ahead. Thank you, Devanch. Um, I am a, an international civil servant who works for the United Nations since the year 2000. I have held several um, positions in the organization, but all to public information. So um, I could say that after all these years, I understand the ins and outs of communicating at the UN. And now I have a fascinating job, which is the chief of the guided tours unit, of which I'll tell you more later. Thank you. All right, and then Hadas, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, thank you. So my name is Hadas Fisher. I'm originally from Israel. I have a master's degree in modern history from Tel Aviv University. And I've been a UN tour guide for about two and a half years now. And I give tours in English and Hebrew, which is my native language. Yeah, so it's so amazing to have two people from the UN join us for this podcast episode, which is about the UN. So let's get started. Thank you so much for to both of you for agreeing to join the podcast. And I'm really excited to discuss so many questions about the UN with both of you. Let's start this first section off by just talking about the United Nations. So could you, uh, could you give the, our listeners a basic history of the UN? Why was it founded? And what would you say are some of the most important projects it's undertaken? Yes, I'm happy to take that question. So as World War II was about to end in 1945, as you can imagine, many nations were in ruins and the world wanted peace. So Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin met several times after World War II to pursue that idea. Actually, even about when the world was coming, when the world was coming to an end. So um, representatives of 50 countries gathered then at the UN conference in San Francisco in California in June 1945. They drafted and signed then the UN Charter, which created basically a blueprint for the new international organization that would work to mainly prevent another world war like the one they had just lived through. Four months after the San Francisco conference ended, then the UN was officially, had officially started. The UN work began, and this is 24th of October, 1945, uh, which is still considered United Nations Day. Uh, that's the date when it came into existence after the charter had been ratified by a majority of signatories. So. The history of the UN, it's still been written. As you can imagine, it's an organization that, that day to day um, deals with and discusses and addresses world issues. So that's just a, a snapshot of how it all started, but it's, 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 a, it's a living organization, um, which is the idea I'm trying to say. Um, in terms of the projects, well, um, let's first understand the scope of work of the UN. Um, it works. It, it work can be um, can be outlined in three main pillars. Um, one is peace and security. The other is development, and the third one is human right. 
So I want to focus on two concepts here because you can imagine that all these pillars have an enormous amount of projects and not only here at the headquarters, but around the world. But I wanna focus on two main projects. One concerns development and the other concerns peace and security. So in terms of development, um, in, 2000, um, in 2015, a, a blueprint for development basically was presented to member state. It is the 2030-2030 agenda for sustainable development that was adopted by all nations, member states in 2015. So this agenda provides a shared blueprint for peace and prosperity for people and the planet now and into the future. At the heart of the 17 sustainable development goals, which are an urgent call for action by all countries, by the way, developed and developing in a global partnership with the backing of the entire United Nations system, and by what I also mean, it's affiliated funds, programs, and agencies like the World Bank, High Commissioner for Refugees, UNICEF, and all that. They recognize that ending poverty and other world issues must go hand in hand with strategies to improve health and education, reduce inequality, stimulate economic growth. All this while tackling climate change and working to preserve our oceans and forests. So in other words, I'm saying that these 17 goals are really the framework of the UN's work in all its areas, because it also includes peace and security, and it also includes protecting human rights. It is so important that basically it, it is a cross-cutting agenda for the entire organization. And um, I just want to emphasize that we call them the sustainable development goals because there is a component of sustainability in it, which means that they should be achieved all while protecting our, our world environment. Now, uh, that's one area, development. And I said I would tell you about an important project in terms of peace and security. I wanna speak about peacekeeping in particular. Um, many, many years ago, I mean, we refer to peacekeeping as chapter number six because the creators, the founders of the organization did not envision that peacekeeping would even exist. But with practice, you know, uh, practice makes perfect. And um, when the first conflict um, happened in the Suez Canal, uh, I mean, the first kind of major, major conflict that, that involved the members of the Security Council, and there was a lot of antagonism and, and division as to how to address it, um, they felt that there was a need for the UN to also get involved in maintaining peace on the ground. Not only making sure that the parties to the conflict would sign a peace agreement and leave, in the, leave it on them, you know, to maintain and sustain that peace, but also making sure that the organization would get involved in keeping peace and preventing conflict on the ground. So um, they, they, they thought that this mechanism uh, on the ground to bring those territories back on their feet was essential. And that's why even today, to this date, um, peacekeepers with the support of local authorities continue to prevent conflict in territories that have been devastated by war. They keep um, maintaining peace and security, protecting civilians, building law and security institutions, etc., just to make sure that those territories can have a sense of normalcy after they have been devastated by war. So um, with that, I think I am answering your question. It's the answer. It's a bit um, 
long, but I think when we talk about projects at the UN, there is no simple answer because this is a, a very huge organization that deals with a, a, a huge number of topics. Thank you. Right, no, that was very long, but it was also really interesting how you talked about uh, development and all of like the economic things that the United Nation does. So, okay, what would you say the UN is right now then? What are its biggest projects that people might not know about? Should I take uh, this one? Yes. Yeah, why, why don't you do that? Yes, so I think in terms of what the UN is doing right now, as the rest of the world, uh, us working in the UN and the organization in general, was kind of plunged into the COVID-19 pandemic and everything that it entails, uh, including uh, economic hardships around the world. So I think the main uh, challenge that the UN has been facing since March 2020 is facing the pandemic, helping the world overcome the pandemic and recover from it. Uh, so I think in terms of what's mostly immediately felt, uh, I would highlight the pandemic. And then I think in terms of the near future and the more distant future, when we talk about the next generation, uh, I think what's on everyone's mind is uh, climate change and the environment. Uh, Vincenzo mentioned the sustainable development goals and certainly one of the big, biggest aspects of them is how to come together to ensure that we have a planet to, to live in and to thrive in the next generation to come. Okay, I think, yeah. I think that the United Nations is something that's like been sort of a symbol for hope in like recent years. It's done a lot of things at least um, clearly that people can see it's UN uh, development programs, environment programs, all of these pro like programs that the UN is undertaking and projects that it's uh, having has really shown that the international community can work together to some extent. So what is, I wanna hear more about your guys' roles in the UN. What do you both do on a day-to-day -day basis within the organization? Vincenzo, do you wanna start? And then we can move on to Hadas. Of course. So I think before I can tell the audience what I do, I need to tell your audience that the UN can be visited. This is something that not everybody knows, but the UN can be visited. And um, as, you, as you jump on a tour, we offer guided tours. People can also understand how the organization works and how it addresses these different global issues. So I am the manager, the chief of the guided tours operation at the HQ. And um, I, I, I would say that my job has two main components. I have a managerial role and I have a public information role. So uh, from the managerial side, I clearly look after the budget. I recruit the tour guides. I handle customer service um, you know, issues with, with clients. I am in charge also of um, coordinating marketing campaigns and advertising for the operation and so forth. On the public information side, I, I make sure that the guides have the most up-to-date information and guidance on the UN's position on a number of issues that the UN deals with. So they can, you know, cleverly incorporate um, those, those concepts and those news into their tours and, and respond to questions if, if they don't, at least respond to questions and convey the UN position in a clear way. 
um, I also make sure that that the guides uh, polish their their communication and public speaking skills, as it is a core component of their job, um, which is I must say, and not because I'm the chief of guided tours, but because of the feedback I've received from thousands and thousands of customers over the years. Their job is quite important. Um, visitors who come to the UN will never see or meet the Secretary General or probably anyone else inside who works at the organization, but they, they will meet a tour guide and they will always remember their face and their language and their name. Um, and this is why they've been called since 1952 when the operation began, the UN ambassadors to the public. So I think I leave Haddad with a great introduction, but I wanna leave the audience with the interest also of coming and visiting the UN whenever they are around in New York. Thank you. Hadas, do you wanna go ahead and introduce yourself more? Yes, so um, as I mentioned, I'm a tour guide and as Vincenzo has mentioned, we're also called ambassadors to the public. Uh, our role is very exciting and very challenging. We're basically at the forefront of um, giving the public, introducing the public to the United Nations, um, educating the public or visitors about the United Nations, uh, what it does, um, and making sure that they have a better grasp of the organization. So when talking about kind of like my day-to-day -day, uh, work, let me just maybe divide it between pre-pandemic and during the pandemic because our, our, our job has changed uh, quite a bit since, the, since March, 2020. So before the pandemic, uh, you could basically find me and my colleagues uh, running around the headquarters uh, in New York City on the banks of the East River uh, every day from morning till late afternoon, giving tours to various audiences. Uh, this is a very uh, kind of hands-on challenging job since you are never quite sure who you're gonna meet. Uh, the UN headquarters is kind of like a microcosmos of the world both in terms of the people who work there, but also in terms of the people who visit. So that means that when I'm giving a tour, it could be one tour could be say a group of senior citizens from New York who might remember visiting the UN headquarters as kids in the 50s and the 60s. It, then another tour could be a group of uh, students say from China, from South Korea, who are very interested about the UN in the UN globally. Uh, then it might be the third tour might be of a group of kindergartners who are very passionate about the environment and climate change. And as a tour guide, your job is to welcome all those various visitors and to give them a sense of welcoming, uh, help them understand the United Nations. And as Vincenzo mentioned, put kind of a human face to this kind of like very broad, big organization that can sometimes be overwhelming to, to people. So pre-pandemic, I would say our job was very kind of like quick on our feet, both physically and in terms of having to be able to answer to a range of questions from people that come from all around the world. Now, since March 2020, our operation has gone mainly virtual because the headquarters is still not uh, is not yet open to the public 
So we had to reinvent our operation and the way we approach the public. Uh, it was never an option of whether we should still uh, educate the public. It was obvious to all of us that this is our mandate, this is our job, and it, our job is not to welcome people when they step in physically within the headquarters. Our job is to be ambassadors to the public. So if, you know, if people can come to the UN physically, let us come to them, to their homes virtually. So we've been working on reinventing our, ourselves in terms of virtual offerings. We've been giving virtual tours uh, and we've also been working on new improved products uh, in terms of thematic tours that go into more depth and specific issues like focus on women, focus on Asia and the Pacific region. So we've been really trying to meet our audiences, our the public where they're at. I can say that it's been very challenging in different ways than our job previously, very exciting. And it also opened new avenues to meeting audiences that we might not have reached otherwise. For example, people live in remote areas that would not have, have not have thought of coming and visiting the UN, the, the headquarters in person in New York. But now since virtual offerings, virtual tours and experiences have become so common and people relate to them and, and are willing to take them, we're able to actually access audiences all around the world. So although the pandemic has really um, made us face some challenges relating to a core mission and product, it's also opened us uh, open new and exciting avenues to, to meeting the people of the world. Thank you. Wow, that's that's really interesting, especially how you like adapted during COVID. Like a lot of businesses and a lot of, I guess, services and groups have had to adapt to this kind of virtual remote environment. And I think that you guys, from what I've seen, have done that really well from my own research on your work. So I wanted to ask, what other organizations does the United Nations, as well as you personally, work with? So like, what would you say are kind of the major organizations that the UN works with? For example, like the World Trade Organization, World Health Organization. And then are there any organizations that you on like a day-to-day -day basis uh, work with, interact with, or collaborate with? Right, so I'm happy to take that question. Um, to, to, understand, um, to understand how this is done, I think we need to go back to the kind of the organigram of the organization so that so that we know the connection and relationship between the UN and these agencies. So one of our major um, entities, councils, organs, as we call it, as you'll find on the website, is the Economic and Social Council. It's basically the organ of the UN that is tasked with improving life standards across the planet. And it's it's probably the organ that it works more directly with the sustainable development goals that I was mentioning earlier. Now, in that council, um, there is, as you can imagine, discussing development and world development, it's, it's a big issue and it couldn't possibly be addressed if the same people discuss the same topic um, in the same room without inviting partners that can bring to the table um, their contribution, their projects and their idea in terms of their specific fields of competence. What am I saying here? 
this council is also the platform to coordinate the activities of, uh, you know, in the development arena of over 30 specialized agencies and programs that work under the umbrella of the Economic and Social Council, if you want. So I'm referring specifically to UN agencies, funds and programs like um, UNICEF, the World Health Organization that you probably have heard a lot now during the pandemic, the World Bank, uh, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and all that. So these entities have a seat in the Economic and Social Council. Clearly member states are the ones who vote, but the representatives can attend meetings, suggest items in the agenda, um, you know, uh, discuss things and raise their hands and talk in meetings because clearly their areas of expertise contribute to the, you know, um, you know successful outcomes of these meetings. So these are organizations that the UN clearly works with directly and on a daily basis. But we also need to mention that uh, international NGOs, non-governmental organizations, um, have also um, consultative status at the Economic and Social Council for the same reason, because they can bring in their expert, the, the, sorry, their expertise, and they can bring their their fresh ideas and projects also into the context of the work of the council and help out. We're basically working for the same goal, right? So, some of these NGOs uh, are Doctors Without Borders, the International Committee of the Red Cross, Amnesty International, Save the Children, etc. These organizations are not so closely affiliated with the UN as the um, um, the funds, programs, and agencies that are part of the UN family and are UN affiliated. These are the ones work with the UN, but uh, not in such a close relationship with the UN because they all have their own budget, their own their own directors. You know, they they don't necessarily are part of the UN, but they work closely together with the UN, particularly in the field. Um, that's in terms of development. Now, in terms of the Economic and Social Council, let's not forget that um, many of the issues that the UN deals with have already been, uh, before they get to the UN, they have already been dealt with or addressed partially, at least, by regional organizations. So if you want, um, when there is an issue a boiling issue in a country, for example, now we all know that the president of Haiti was, was killed. Um, domestically, these issues are dealt with and their political leaders basically step up and deal with the issue internally. If they seek assistance, they normally knock on the door of the regional, of their respective regional organization first, which can be, you know, it, for us in the Americas is the Organization of American States. Uh, in Europe is the European Union. Um, in, in, in the Arab world is the League of Arab States and so forth. So if these regional organizations wish to involve the UN as well or are unable or unwilling to deal with the issues, then the issue, the specific issues come to the attention of the United Nations. So I would say that um, the regional organizations from the political perspective at the Security Council are definitely um, very much involved in everything that the UN does with regards to peace and security. 
but also these organizations have, as you can imagine, a, a, um, a development component. You know, the European Union ha also has its, its, you know, its own guidelines and and its own contributions in terms of development in Europe. So I, I can assume that they also would link to ECOSOC. But in a, I wanted to bring more the, the political aspect to it, and I just wanted to say that. Um, the UN is highly political, and so are these regional political organizations as well, which, which have to work hand in hand with the UN to bring certain issues, uh, uh, to, uh, to implement certain issues um, on the ground with the help of the UN and with the help of everyone, basically. Okay, thank that's you. Yeah. And I think that's going to be the end of this section. So next next section, we'll be talking about how the UN affects people's daily lives, what students can do to support the UN, as well as misconceptions about the United Nations. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. We're going to kick off this section by talking about how the United Nations affects people's daily lives. Um, Hadas, I know you have some experience in talking to people about this. So do you want to go ahead? Yes, thank you. This is a question that we are uh, faced with quite a lot. People often come to the UN, they have a basic understanding or maybe an impression of the UN, but they want to know what is the UN actually doing on the ground every day, and specifically if and how the UN affects them personally. So to answer those questions, we actually, uh, we are two guides have this tool, these cards, a uh, small card that can fit in a wallet. It's also available for visitors to have. I have it on my uh, badge, just have it with me that I can present. And it basically lists the major things that the UN does every day or every year to help people around the world. So it's kind of like quick, easy soundbite kind of like answer to this question. So it ranges from things like helping refugees who flee war, providing food and assistance and, um, and uh, protecting, uh, promoting human rights globally uh, and fighting extreme poverty. I personally, there's one item on this list that's personally very close to me, uh, and this is the help in vaccinating the world, and specifically the children of the world. So UNICEF and World Health Organization together are the leading bodies in vaccinating kids. They vaccinate about 45% of the world's children every year. And specifically, the UN has been credited with helping eradicate polio and smallpox. So often people, you know, they don't necessarily feel the dangers that have passed because fortunately we are now no longer subject to these horrible diseases. So for me, the help that the UN gives in vaccinating the world is a central, uh, is central achievement and a central contribution. And it saves about 3 million lives every year. Now, this is even before talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and during the pandemic, the UN uh, member states have teamed up for a, a collaboration called COVAX to help get vaccines to people who need them around the world, specifically in lower income countries where people don't have access to the vaccines. So for me, this is one of the most tangible uh, effects of the UN around the world.
Okay, I think that the vaccination effort is definitely a super a super tangible effect that the United Nations has. I think that like a lot of the things that the United Nations does aren't necessarily directly visible from our standpoint as like people living in mostly the United States uh, and other wealthy countries. But I think that the United Nations has a lot of this kind of this is doing so much in countries where those access that vaccine access, that healthcare access isn't available. So in that, in kind of a similar vein, what can students do to support the United Nations? Uh, how do high school and middle school students get involved further um, and support these efforts that the United Nations is doing? So I can take uh, this question and yeah, young visitors are a major share of our visitors. We often get students, and by students, I mean all the way from kindergarten to graduate students uh, from around the world. And there's acute understanding among our colleagues and the UN in general that the youth are the future. And so it's crucial to kind of like mobilize young people to help them understand the mission of the UN and to help them uh, feel motivated and excited about the mission of the United Nations. So when talking about specific avenues that young people can take to be involved, uh, there are many options. Model UN is certainly one of the biggest kind of like major avenues that we see. Students who do Model UN, I love having them on my tours because they're always very enthusiastic, very knowledgeable, have very deep, challenging questions, which are a lot of fun to, to think about and to answer. Um, beyond that, I can specifically mention the uh, Envoy on Youth, the Secretary General's Envoy uh, of Youth, uh, which is a body led by a young um, Sri Lankan civil servant who is coordinating and leading the involvement of young people in the United Nations. So uh, you can easily find it online. It, the website is un.org slash youth envoy. Uh, and this is something this uh, body does a lot of activities such as uh, international conventions, competitions where you can bring to the forefront your uh, passions, your contributions. So if it's something that is interest to you, to your listeners, I really encourage you to go and take a look. All right, thank you. And <laughs> actually, I really appreciate uh, how you talked about Model UN students. I believe that our Model UN club might actually be making a visit to um, the United Nations building, which would be incredibly cool. Okay, so my last and I, I think my final question is going to be, what are some common misconceptions that people have about the United Nations? What do they assume that's incorrect? And what kind of things that we haven't already gone over in this uh, podcast episode? Um, do people think about the UN that are just not true? Okay, so I will take that question, um, Devansh. Uh, first of all, I feel that people not not. It's a misconception, but it, it's clearly a lack of knowledge of how the UN works. They don't understand that the UN is not just a single body; that there's many entities in it. 
and every entity clearly makes its own decisions and votes, you know, according to its own political interests. So yes, the United Nations works to better the world, but those decisions, um, you know, they have to, when, when a member state cast a vote in the Security Council, particularly, uh, even though everything can be political, but when, when a vote is casted in one of the organs, they clearly reflect the position of their capitals. So I'm trying to say that the foreign policy of all 193 member states, it's in a way pursued at the United Nations. So it's highly politicized. So people from the outside tend to think and label the United Nations um, hasn't done much in this situation or the United Nations on the contrary did well. Well, that's, it could be that in fact, what people, you know, when people judge a specific involvement of the UN, they can say the UN has been more or less effective. That, that is correct. But assuming that all these issues are dealt with in the same room by the same people and voted in the same way, it's what is incorrect. So the UN has different organs and all of them has its own voting procedures and its way of making decisions. So I, I wanted to bring that out, which is the first misconception. The UN is not just one. There's many UN inside the organization. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring out, the second point is that uh, as such, people considering the UN as a single kind of block, um, they may think that the organization itself is some sort of world government that imposes its will on its member states. That is actually incorrect as well. Um, I'm saying this because the UN is actually the whole world in itself. It's not an organization that has, uh, you know, supranational powers to intervene and go against, um, let's say, the, the, inter the internal affairs of any single country. The only um, space in the UN Charter that where the UN has the ability to do so, it's when there's um, a threat uh, to international peace and security. There, the Security Council can make this decisions that could probably be against the will of a specific member state, but it is in the interest of maintaining or restoring international peace and security. Um, besides that exception, the rest, it's all about how much member states want to contribute to the ultimate goal of the UN, which is make a better world for all of us. How much do they, how much how much do they know that they want to share with the rest of the world? Um, what kind of knowledge sharing experiences can happen inside the organization by member states so that certain best practices can be replicated in other countries? It's all about a platform for coordination and action where member states share the goodwill of, of advancing certain world issues that need basically, um, that need to be tackled, that need to be addressed. Some of them, you know, fairly quickly uh, because they pose a risk either to our environment, to our people, to human rights, to peace and securities and, and whatever. So basically um, to, to end my point, I can categorically say that the UN is not a world government. It is rather an international organization that depends on the will of its member states to make it as effective and, and as, 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 as effective and as powerful as its member states want it to be. 
that's my answer. Thank you. All right. Yeah, I think that the idea of the United Nations being a world government is like fairly common. And I think that is definitely a myth that needs to be dispelled. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you both of you so much for agreeing to be on this podcast. I think we've talked about some really interesting things and gotten viewpoints that we wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. So I really, really appreciate both of you. Do either of you have any closing remarks before we sign off this podcast? Thank you. I, and, um, I, I thank you for the opportunity of, uh, of uh, allowing us to amplify what we do and what you and us. So it's, it's a pleasure. And anytime, if you want us to, you know, us or other people from the team to be again with, with you, we'll, we'll be happy to, to coordinate that for you. Yeah, I just, I want to say thank you so much uh, for having us. Uh, and just to say, I personally cannot wait to be back in full force. Uh, so if you're listening, you know, stay tuned for news uh, for when we are opening back physically to the public and come visit us. I hope your group uh, physically will come to visit us in the headquarters very soon. All right. And thank you all for listening. Bye. Yes.